Charles Templeton was, he was tall, he was dark, and he was handsome. Charles Templeton was a famous man. He was a, he was an evangelist, and he preached to thousands of people. He preached all over the world, the English-speaking world. He's very well known. He married, at the time, he married a young woman who was a popular, beautiful, young Christian singer. Charles Templeton then went on to be one of the founders of the movement called Youth for Christ, which, is, which went around the world. But late in the 50s, he began to doubt his faith. And in 1957, he, he left his wife and he left his faith altogether. Never again in his life did he ever openly return to his faith. It was a scandal at the time. What is it that makes people give up on their faith? What is it that makes people, plunges people in doubt? Do you think sometimes people have trouble when they face trials or when they have deep temptations that they face? Or sometimes do you think that people will turn their back because they have doubt, they lose hope, or because they have come to a point in their life where they're just kind of tired of living for other people and they want to live for themselves? Well, that little list of possibilities, I didn't pick that out of midair, that comes out of our text today in 1 Peter and chapter 1. If you haven't already done that, take your Bible right now and turn to 1 Peter and chapter 1, because we're going to teach through 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 25 this morning, and I want to help you to, to know what to do when trouble comes. I have a friend who is very dear to me. He was involved in Christian ministry and had a large family. And um, one day his boys were on their way to a, a youth event. And they were just young boys, uh, one of them just old enough to have his driver's license. And they were on their way to a youth event out in the country. And somebody missed a stop sign and those boys were killed. It was a horrifying tragedy for everyone, for my friend, for his wife, for their family, for everyone who knew them. Not long after that, he walked away from his faith altogether and openly began to deny the Lord and the things of the Lord. What makes a person walk away from their faith? What would tempt a person to break their wedding vows and violate God's law or live in complete disregard for God's law and immorality? What would make a person do that? What would make a person give up hope altogether and throw themselves into despair? What would make a person live selfishly and not care about others? Again, there's a list of three things there if you noticed it. And I'll point it out again and again as we go in the text. It comes out of the text. It's what people tend to do when they're faced with hardship or trials or suffering. You've been studying with us, I hope, in 1 Peter in chapter 1, and you notice that it is in verse 6 and 7 that it comes to the heart of what Peter was writing to the people in, the, in this region about. He was, he was trying to prepare them for suffering they were going through and, and suffering that would intensify. And he was saying to them, these are the things that are true about you. You're rejected by the world, but you're accepted by God. Remember that? You're burdened in the world, but you're blessed by God. And so in the per first chunk of 1 Peter in chapter 1, all that Peter talked about with the people is the things that were true about them, the gifts that God had given them, the things that God had done, the things they didn't have to act on these things for them to be true. 
in that they were believers, these things were true about them. But now the text is going to change. And in the text that we read already today, he's going to give them three commands and three imperatives, if you will. They're very clear. They're three things that they should do. So if you want to understand how my talk is organized this morning, here's the way you might want to think about it. What do you tend to do when trouble comes into your life? What do you tend to do? Is it possible that you tend to give up hope and be plunged into despair? You tend to violate God's ways and be plunged into immorality or a lack of holiness, or you tend to sin? Is it possible that you tend to live selfishly? Because if you notice, those are the three sections of chapter 1, verses 14 to 25. Peter's going to go directly at the people and say to them, since these things are true about you, and think about these three words, what Peter's going to say can be organized around these three words, the word, uh, the, the word hope, and the word holiness, and the word love. So in order for you to think clearly about what I'm going to talk about today and teach this passage to understand it, think about hope, think about holiness, think about love. This is what Peter's going to say to them. When things are hard, when suffering comes, cling to hope. He's going to say, gird up the loins of your mind, and he's going to say, get your roots down, put on your running shoes, and and rest your hope fully on future grace, is what he's going to say in verse 14. Then in the next chunk there, he's going to give some, he's going to give some reasons. He's going to give some powerful reasons why suffering isn't an excuse to live a sinful life. He's going to challenge the people, even though they're suffering, they should still be living holy lives. And it's rich text that we just read, and we'll study it. And then he's going to say to them, and this should not be a time for you to withdraw and be selfish, but it should be a time for you to fervently love one another. This is really what he's saying. And it is in the context of trials. So again, think about it like this. What do you tend to do when trials come? Do you, you tend to do the opposite of these things. I tend to lose hope. I tend to sin. I tend to selfishness. And you probably do too. This is what, this is the, this is the implied thing. So Peter is saying, even though you're suffering, these are things that are, that, that we expect of you. These are the things that God expects of you. And he's going to make a really strong case. So I just told you what I'm going to say. And now I'm going to take a couple of hours to say it. Or not. It has seemed that way. It won't really be that long. Take a bit of time to, to say that. I had a former uh, pastor friend who came to our church one time. And he's a good guy. And he had been roughed up in a church. He'd, he'd, he'd been roughed up kind of badly. He'd had a bad experience in the church. So I remember that this pastor came to our church. I was really young. And he went and he had a pew that he would come in. He would sit in the back with his wife. And he was just wounded. You could just tell he was wounded. And he would come faithfully, and he would sit in that pew, and when it was time to sing hymns, he would be there, and he wouldn't exuberantly enter into the hymns or anything, but he was there, and when the pastor preached, he listened, and when the pastor said amen, he went home, and you could not get him in the choir, you couldn't get him to go calling, you couldn't get him to come to an extra event, you couldn't get him to, he was just... He just seemed like he was crushed with despair. And he was, it just seemed, not to judge the dear man, but it just seemed like he was doing the minimum stuff that he needed to do just to attend church and to go home. 
And on the pastoral staff, we would always think, how can we engage that guy? How can we involve him in something? How can we encourage him? How can we get him back into service? How can we get him back on the team? How can we give him a good experience? Sometimes difficulty comes into our life. Have you had this experience? And you just feel crushed. Like, I don't feel like I can go on. This is the natural state of things. And that is why Peter is exhorting the people, therefore, and the therefore is a reference to this riches of our salvation that he's described already, that we already have. We're exiles, but we're elect. We're burdened, but we're blessed. And in particular, with eternal salvation. And therefore, he says, prepare your minds for action or put on your running shoes. And it actually says, gird up the loins of your mind, which meant back then if you had a long tunic, you'd have a belt, you'd tuck the tunic up into your, your belt so you could work or you could run. And it wouldn't get, it'd be like us saying, lace on your running shoes. We're going to go. And, and, and he says, the idea here is to set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So the thing that Peter is exhorting them to do, the command that he's giving them, is to set their hope fully on future grace. That Jesus, who we don't see now, is going to be revealed one day. And that's the thing we ought to be thinking about. In order to do that, he says, gird up the loins of your mind. And he also says, be sober-minded. Put on your running shoes and be serious about this. Okay, so hardship has come. Difficulty has come. A setback has come. Something you didn't like happened. You got hurt somehow. Suffering has come. What's the first thing that God says through Peter? He says, I want you to set your hope fully on Jesus coming back someday, and you're going to meet him face to face. In order to do that, you need to put on your running shoes and get serious. That's really a paraphrase of what verse 13 says. Therefore, preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, set your hope fully, and that's the key thing there, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Christ Jesus, of, of Jesus Christ. John Piper has written well on this. He has a whole book called Future Grace. This is what Piper is talking about in that book. The Christian's whole orientation is not on this world. The Christian is the one that can best enjoy this world because he gets the story and he, under, she, he or she understands what's going on, that God created it, that God's not done with it, that what we see that's broken is going to get fixed. We get all of that, but we're not living for this world the way it is. We're looking forward to the, the invisible God, Jesus, who we don't right see now, who is visible, will be visible to us when he's revealed at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's to, we set our hope or our confidence in future grace or future gifts. We're looking at the future, we're looking to heaven. And that's why we hold the hope, we prepare our minds for action, we're sober-minded, we're serious. That's the first thing. And that kind of, you understand. So, so Peter's uh, command there is, in hard times, cling to hope. And this isn't like that ethereal. Remember this, we've taught this before. It's not that ethereal kind of like, well, I kind of hope it's true. It's like, no. I am confident that Jesus is going to appear someday. I am confident that this world is going to be folded into the other world, that heaven is going to come down, that there's going to be a new Jerusalem one day and a new heaven and a new earth, and Jesus will be on the throne, and that's what I'm looking forward to. It will be forever. And so this is the thing he's reminding them. This world, ha you know, this world is only good if you understand that God is redeeming it because it's broken. So the first thing he then says is, in hard times, 
cling to hope. The second thing that he says is, in hard times, pursue holiness. It would be easy to think, well, you know, things are hard, so I'm going to cheat a little bit. Things are hard, so I'm going to break some of the rules. Isn't that what we tend to do? Well, you wouldn't really expect me to keep, to do what you say, to sin less with less frequency or less, in, less intensity in the current circumstances that I'm in, would you? Well, let's see what he says. As obedient children, don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who has called you as holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed with the, from your feudal ways, inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or without spot. When you are a pastor, and this is your text, it's like you're, you're pulling up to a table uh, filled with a delicious feast. This is such a feast of truth. As a pastor, let me show you six things in this chunk right here. Six things, hard times, in hard times we pursue holiness. And he gives us, in a way you could say, he's given us six reasons. Since these are, thing, these are true, you should pursue holiness. He gives us six good reasons. If you, if you notice in the first chunk, he says in hard times we, we're going to pursue hope. And he tells us how, by girding up the loins of your mind and by being sober. In this section, he's saying, in hard times, pursue holiness. And he tells us why. And here's six reasons why. Because you're, you're to be like obedient children. We're children of the Father. Good children are obedient children. It's that simple. He's the Father. You're the child. You obey. Like obedient children, who do you, you get your little children that don't really know what's best, look to the eyes of their parents, and they obey them. And Peter's just saying, you are a child of a good heavenly Father. You do what he says. You, things are hard. It's important that you live in obedience right now. Now, the second thing he says in verses 15 and 16, notice this, and he, he who is called you is holy, so you be holy in all of your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So Peter's referring to the Old Testament. There, there Leviticus, God is holy. He's admirable. He's perfectly holy, demands perfect holiness. That's the whole message of the Old Testament. So you should be holy. Why should we be holy even when things are hard? Because we are obedient children. Because God is holy, we should be holy. And then he appeals to us, you call on God, don't you? And who is that God you call on? You know, when you pray, who is that God you call on? He says this, look at verse 17. And if you call on him as a father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, he, re he refers to God as a father who is an impartial judge who judges things with absolute fairness. He said, this is the one you call on. This, this. So would this not be motivation for us to live holy lives? You are going to stand before God as your judge. We stand before God as our judge. And he judges impartially. In other words, he's a perfect judge. So we're like children before the Father. And we're, so we should be obedient. And it said, we, God is holy, so we should be holy. We face an impartial judge. He's the one we call on, so we should be holy. We should be holy because the other life that we lived before was empty. Look at verse 18. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, 
not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but the precious blood of Christ. But, but, but he's saying here, you, your former life was empty. Your formal life was futile. You don't want to go back to your former life. So he's saying to the people, look, hardship is going to become, you're going to be tempted to sin. Don't do it because you'll be going back to your former life. You don't want to do that. Now, can I rant? Okay, I will. So what I've noticed is that in our attempt to reach people who don't know the Lord, we have often tried to impress them that we're really familiar with popular culture. We know your songs. We know your movies. We know all that stuff. Only problem is the popular culture is infected with all kinds of sinful things. So if I talk like I'm really savvy about current movies and current songs, I'm probably going to give you the impression that you could imbibe in some of those things without sin, which would often not be the case. Are you tracking with me? In other words, the world that we live in is an enemy of God. The philosophies of the world we live in are against the things of God. We have to swim upstream. The former life, we don't want to go back to that. We don't want to use the things of the former life to attract people to a faith which is like a watered-down faith that's not no, it's a, it's, if it's real, it's holy, because God is holy, and he calls us to holiness. In other words, you sin less. You please God more. You don't do things that are bad. You, this is actually, interestingly, becoming unpopular to talk about in the church. Actual holiness, actual, I obey God. I, I please God by keeping his law. God has said that it is impossible for us in the flesh to keep the law of God. But he's clearly taught that in the Spirit, we can keep the law of God in the Spirit. In Romans in chapter 8. And throughout the Bible, we are called to holy lives. We are commanded to live holy lives. When a Christian is confronted with his sin or her sin, whatever level of sin that is, whatever kind, whatever how, how sneaky sin can be, it might be very overt, it might be something really subtle, but when, we're, when, we're, when our sin is exposed, if we're following God, we to to, to be faithful Christians, we have to have a heart that says, I don't want my former life. That was empty at best. I want my new life because that's meaningful. Holiness is clearly commanded in Scripture. Holy living, sinning less, obeying God more is the command of the Bible. And, and, and we're going to get to something wonderful about that, but let's just leave it set right there for now. What is Peter saying? He's saying difficulty is not an excuse to sin. Difficulty is not a license for you to sin and go back to your old ways. But that is the tendency that we have. Well, things were hard, so I lost hope, and then I began to I mean, everybody has a reason, a rationalization for their sin. Well, for me, this is what happened. So that's why I did this. And for me, you know, you have to understand what, I was, what was the pressure that was on me. Or I have, in other words, it, when I suffer, it's okay for me to sin. But Peter is saying, no, suffering is not an excuse to sin. And he says, because that'd be going back to your former life. So you've got these six things. One, because we, we, we live a holy life because we are obedient children. We live a holy life because God is holy. We live a life because we stand before an impartial judge. We live a holy life because we don't want to go back to our former life. And then number five and six, we live a holy life because we're redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. This is a beautiful picture that Peter points out to people who live in a culture where many, if not a majority of the people, were slaves. 
And so this redemption, this redeemed, redeemed by the blood of Christ, the precious blood of Christ would have been a really powerful picture. Notice it's in verse 18 and 19. We inherited these futile ways from our forefathers. And by the way, he also is saying, just because your people do that doesn't mean it's just, you ever have somebody say, sorry if you're Irish. Um, They'll say, that's just the Irish in me. And then what they're talking about is like sinful anger. Or maybe, can we just pick on Dutch people? Are you Dutch? Raise your hand if you're Dutch. Yeah. And, and you say, well, I'm stingy. I'm just Dutch, you know. Or I'm whatever. I'm, 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 what, what, who do we want to pick on today? I mean, I'm happy to do, I'm happy to be an equal opportunity uh, slanderer. No, kidding. But, you know, when you say, well, this is just the way my people are. It's like, yeah, that's no excuse. And you come from people that are sinful. Congratulations. You, now, repent. So I always like to tell people, there's one thing all pure punts are good at, and <laughs> we are really good at it. We all do it, sin. And that's what he's saying. And anyway, rant over. I'll, I'll come back and rant again soon. Feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. But then he says this, that, we, that you were ransomed. So that's the redeemed, that's the price of the redemption. The ran, you were ransomed. It's a sweet word. You were ransomed, um, not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, which we tend to think is pretty valuable, but with the precious blood of Christ. And then he says this, like that of a lamb without a blemish or without a spot. He calls on this holy description of Jesus. And he says, Jesus, the ransom, was like a lamb without a blemish, without a spot. And that life he gave to ransom you so that you can live without a blemish and without a spot. How dare you go and live a life of sin when Jesus shed his pure and holy blood for you? That's what he's saying. Peter, Peter lived that life. He repented of his defection, remember? And he came back to Jesus and he's broken about it. He wept and then he lived for God. And God is calling some of you back to him right now. And you, ha- you know that you have violated God's ways and you've lived in a way you know isn't pleasing to God. And he's calling you back you should come running back. He ransomed you with his precious blood. Anytime, any way that you and I find that we have strayed from God, we should just come running back when we think of the ransom price that was paid, the precious blood of Jesus who was a lamb without spot and without blemish. And then he gives us a final one as if we needed more. He also refers to him as a risen Savior who's going to manifest himself there in verse 20. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Peter likes to say that, you notice that? But was made manifest in these last times for the sake of you. And again, he refers earlier to Jesus being the invisible, believing in an invisible. Jesus is not invisible, but he wasn't visible to them at the time. Jesus is visible, he's in physical, and he's going to appear physically, he's going to manifest himself. So Peter refers to this regularly, and we ought to remind ourselves regularly, Jesus is going to show up someday. Jesus is going to appear someday. That one that we haven't seen, whom having not seen we love, he says there, chapter 1. He he says he's going to show up someday. He's going to appear someday. Let me help you with this. We're talking about not sinning, right? Think of that sin that you wrestle with, like talking about somebody else behind their back. Now imagine Jesus standing there. Think of that thing that you think about, that you excuse yourself, that sin 
that fornication or that adultery or that pornography or that theft or that lie or, or whatever it is you tempted to sin. And imagine Jesus is standing there and he's saying, am I not enough for you? I shed my blood for you. When Jesus appears, everything's going to be turned right side up again. So the Christian is wise enough to realize, I'm going to live remembering all the time Jesus is going to appear. We don't know when, but he's going to appear someday. So these are, if you will, in hard times, what do we do? Peter says very clearly, he commands the people, it's imperative. Set your hope in God. In hard times, cling to hope. Keep believing, keep trusting. And then in hard times, pursue holiness. Don't use it as an excuse to sin. Third thing Peter is going to say is, in hard times, devote yourself to sincere love. Now, I, I don't want to do this all the time, but I often now at my age, when I read the Bible, I remember the first time I, when I was a boy and I read that when I was in study hall at school the first time. And I remember I had this little red Schofield handy sized Bible that I would carry to study hall with me and I would, I would read that. I had a red pen I'd mark. And I remember reading the sincere love of the brethren. I remember thinking that just coming off the page, like what a beautiful thing for a person to say, Imagine an organization, a place, a, a club a, where people really actually do sincerely and earnestly love you. That'd be rare, wouldn't it? Peter is saying, I know things are hard. It's not an excuse to be selfish. I know trouble is coming. It's not, a, not an excuse to, to let your love be kind of shallow or thin or fake. This week, we have a thing that I like to say, a good leader is always on the lookout for when God shows up. A good leader points out when God shows up. But did you see that? Did you see? I like to think that way. Like, I like to pay attention to when God shows up in the lives of people. I want to embarrass somebody, but this week I had an experience like that. I saw somebody do something that was Christ-like, one of our people. And I just thought, that's so good. That's so right. That's the way it ought to be. When somebody has this problem, somebody ought to get, you know, help them. They ought to act. And that, I hear about that even in our small church and our, our, our uh, feeble attempts at following Jesus. I hear about it all the time. People doing things for other people that they didn't, you know, they didn't advertise. They didn't tell anybody. They just, it was because they're Christian. Now, now look at this. It's so, so sweet. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead. Peter's always bringing up that resurrection thing because, you know, he's the only God who ever did that and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to truth. In other words, as you're a Christian, for a sincere brotherly love, if you're really Christian, you'll love, is what he's saying. It's going to produce a sincere brother love. Love one another earnestly with a pure heart. Love one another earnestly with a pure heart. And since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God, for all flesh is grass. This is quoting Isaiah 40. All his glory is the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord remains forever. The first time my family was touched with death that I saw it was my grandfather, who I love very much. He was a farmer, Central Ohio, and I was named after him. And then when he died, I remember going to his grave and um, facing death in our family for the first time. And then our, the next spring, he died in October. The next spring, we took a family vacation. Maybe you remember this, Lois, and we drove back to Ohio. 
and we went back to visit my grandfather's grave. And I remember walking up to his grave and noticing that the grass on top of the grave was dead, that in the wintertime it hadn't taken hold yet. And I remember this is the passage that came to my mind. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will abide forever. You can build your life on the promises of God's word. They will never die. This is what we need to remember, especially when things are, when trouble comes. It's not an excuse to be selfish and sinful. Not an excuse to give up hope and despair. People, so my friend who walked away from the Lord and walked away from his wife, his wife also lost her sons, but she didn't walk away from the Lord. He didn't have to walk away from the Lord. I understand that, I can't understand the depth of sorrow that he went through, but she went through it too. But she clung to the Lord. His kids didn't walk away from the Lord. His kids that lived clung to the Lord. I often think, God, I've never had this depth of sorrow that I've faced. But if I did, help me, God, and give me grace that I would cling to you and not turn away from you. This is what Peter's saying. People, trouble's coming. Suffering is coming. You're going to have to pay a price. When it comes, cling to hope. Walk in holiness and love one another. And Bethel Church, I would say, we don't know what we're going to face. We have a little minor little thing that the government suggests, and we're whining and crying like babies. You notice that? We're on Facebook, and we're going to like, like it's the American Revolution all over again. It is not. It is not. Come on. You know it's not. But the, but the time will come that because you're a believer— and you have convictions about what the Bible teaches, people are going to reject you, and it may cost you actual money. It may change your tax status. It may change your income. It may change your job. It's probably coming, probably coming. Question is, what are you going to do? Are you going to despair? Are you going to sin? Are you going to be selfish and mean? Or are you going to lean into no, I'm going to cling to hope. I'm going to gird up the loins of my mind. I'm going to be sober. I'm going to have all these reasons to live a holy life. I'm not going to use it as an excuse not to live a holy life. And I'm going to love more than We're going to have more opportunities to love now, aren't we? People, we're going to have to share with people. We're going to have to be understanding with people. This is why it, it said, that's why Peter included this love. Now, this is the heart of what I want to tell you. This is the heart of what I want to tell you shouldn't do this, but I just have to laugh. I look at the clock, and the clock says it's 826. So I am in sweet shape today. I go till noon. When that, oh, They're going to go back there right now going, oh, come on, fix that, quick. I go till noon. It's only 826, people. I'm not going to shortchange you. I'm not that kind of a guy. A good pastor would never have said that, would he? I just look up, it's 826. I love it. I love this church. It's a great church. Day 26. Um, here's the heart of what I want to tell you, though. Here's the heart. Listen, when we started out this message, we, we talked about Charles Templeton. And for whatever reason, he walked away from the Lord. We talked about my dear friend who walked away from the Lord. And we talked about you. What do you do when, when, when things get hard? And then we talked about what Peter said you should do. And that's the heart of the text, what Peter said you should do. But, but I, I want to take some license homiletically, can I? And go to another question, that is, what can you do? Because it's powerfully and beautifully implied. If God says, I expect you to cling to hope, and I expect you to live in holiness, and I expect you to live in love, that implies, with his help, 
we can live in hope and in holiness and in love even when things are hard. You say, I had a bad experience. I had a bad bringing up. I was trained weird. My parents were mean to me. I live in a time when people are against me. No excuses. These people were being severely persecuted. Severely persecuted. And yet God says, this is what I expect of you. So here's the heart of what I want to teach you today. It's what do you do in trouble comes. What should you do? But what can you do? Do you see this? If we're being commanded to live this way, with God's help, it is possible to live this way. We can live in holiness, and we can live in hope, and we can live in love. Hope is possible. Holiness is possible. Love is possible. It is possible to live in a community of people who have set their hope in God. And they're consistent. They're not hypocrites. They're real. And they are pursuing holiness, and it's real. Yeah, men who are actually holy men. Young people who are actually not giving in to sin. Women who really are holy women. This is possible or we wouldn't be commanded to do it. You can be among them with God's help. And, I, and, and if you're like I am, you think, well, I guess I'm going to, maybe I'm going to have to start over. Yes, you can start over. And you must start over. When I was um, young, there was a running craze. Do you remember it? I thought I should probably do that. So I put on my basketball shoes one day, and I got and I ran down the road for a few hundred yards, and then I was completely spent. And I just, then I kept walking, and then once I got going again, I ran, and I got down to the to the stop signs about five minutes from our house. It's completely wasted. Uh, wow, that was hard. And then I ran and walked back. But then the next day, I put on my basketball shoes again, and, and then I walked and ran down to the... I decided well, I was going to keep going until I could run 20 minutes, because that's what Kenneth Cooper said. If I can run 20 minutes a day, I will never die. And so I, I ran. I got so that I could run out 10 minutes. And it was cool because I thought, once I've run out 10 minutes, I have to come home. So then I run back 10 minutes, and I would sprint the last few hundred yards because it just seemed like the right thing to do. So I would go out every day, six days a week. And after a while, I got so I, I, I could run that pretty quickly. And one Saturday morning, it was really cool out, and I, I went out running. And, and I got out to the end of my route, the 10 minutes, and I just kept going. And I just kept going. And I and I was like, if there's a runner's high, I must have had it that day. I felt great. I was running. I know you look at me now going, he never ran. I'm like, it's true. It's true. It's in a former life. And I ran six miles that day, over six miles. I got in my car, drove around, like, I was over six miles. I remember thinking, I'm an athlete now. <laughs> I did. I remember thinking, you know, I, I'm an athlete because you can't run six miles and not be an athlete. So I'm an athlete. I remember thinking that. You're, you're laughing, but I mean, did you run six miles this morning? Some of you did not do that. And I was kind of cool. I, gave, I, I overate one day, and I thought, I'll buy new shoes. I bought new running shoes. They had, like, Velcro closures on them. Uh, I, I, went, I went running every day. I was run then I decided I would be in a race, so I, I joined a race. Signed up for a race in Bourbon, Indiana, south of Bremen, Bourbon, Indiana, and went down there on a Saturday night for that, for that 10K. So I'm running a race, six miles. It ended on a track, and I, I remember when I was finishing, I was thinking, there's a old lady in front of me, and I thought, my goodness, you know, there's a, there's a female in front of me, and, and because males are supposed to be better athletes than females, you know, 
I decided, it's that wonderful silence you get when you say something really ignorant like that. And, and I said, I'm going to pass this girl, you know. I'm going to pass her, which I did. I had to work really hard. I almost threw up passing that girl. And when I turned around, she was like 65 years old. I was like, oh my goodness. I passed a little old lady there at the club. <laughs> got done. I was like, really thought I was going to be sick. And then I went over and got my ribbon and I got my banana. And we were standing around on the little hillside and the dusk fell. And then uh, we were getting ready to go home. And all of a sudden, we noticed off in the distance, there was kind of a light uh, off in the distance. We realized it was a, it was a uh, ambulance that was coming in real slow, real, real slow. And the, 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 the run ended on a track. So the ambulance pulled into the stadium area there and started around the track. And it was only then that we realized there was the last runner was out there, a little old man was just shuffling along in front of the ambulance, one foot in front of the other. He wasn't quitting. And when people began to realize that they began to gather at the finish line, a large group of people gathered at the finish line. And when that little old man shuffled across the finish line, it was like he won a marathon. People were shouting and clapping and cheering and, and, and congratulating him. And you know what's interesting? That's an old story that never meant much to me, but it came back to me the other day. And now that I'm shuffling around wherever I go, <laughs> I think that's, that's the guy. I mean, I, I don't know how fast I'm going to be at the finish, but even if I'm just in front of the ambulance and I'm just shuffling one foot in front of the other, I want to finish. I want to finish faithful. And this passage says, I can. I can. With God's help, I can. I can finish with hope in my heart. I can finish with a holy life. I can finish with sincere, earnest, and genuine love. These things are possible. That kind of puts a spring in your step. Charles Templeton, he failed to follow the Lord, but he had a friend. You know he had a friend, right? Do you know who Charles Templeton's friend was? You see them in pictures together all the time when they were young. His name was Bill. Billy Graham was Charles Templeton's friend. When Charles Templeton walked away from the Lord, it shook Billy Graham up. It shook his faith. And he had to go alone with the Lord and decide if he believed the Bible. And Billy Graham decided that he believed the Bible. And we have all seen the beautiful fruit of his life. John Rocky is going to come right now. And he